electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the keynote by CNBC Events. I'm Meg Terrell, CNBC's senior health and science reporter. On this podcast, we bring you in-depth, candid conversations with experts, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders from interviews that are usually recorded in front of live audiences. But today, as we deal with the COVID-19 outbreak, we're speaking remotely to public health experts who are helping us through this pandemic. Today, my conversation with Dr. Ali Khan, Dean of the College of Public Health at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. He was previously Director of the Office of Public Health Preparedness and Response at the CDC, where he spent more than two decades. And he's the author of the book, The Next Pandemic, On the Front Lines Against Humankind's Gravest Dangers, which chronicles his years as a disease detective, traveling the world, investigating outbreaks. Dr. Khan and I spoke on May 6, 2020, as part of CNBC's weekly series, Healthy Returns, The Path Forward. My first question was, what does a disease detective do? Take a listen. So a disease detective, I, I think I'd focus on the detective part. It's uh, when you go out and figure out if there's, when there's a new disease, why do you have that new disease? And more specifically, and uh, how do you prevent that new disease? And we're seeing that play out currently with this new coronavirus, uh, how how does it get transmitted within the community? We found out it causes uh, transmission from person to person. We found out it causes disease with the healthcare workers. And then based on that, we started to craft our strategies. This is what you do within the community. You wear a mask, you wash your hands. This is what you do within hospitals to protect healthcare workers. So that's the work of a disease detective. Figure out where this comes from, figure out how this is transmitted, and then the most important part, figure out how to stop this. Right, and we're all eager to know about that last question. I want to ask you about your work uh, on one of those diseases, SARS. You've been tweeting about COVID-19 using the hashtag NewSARS. Uh, and of course, the name of this virus is SARS-CoV-2. And you were just the, the focus of a, a big piece in The New Yorker, um, which focused a lot of uh, time explaining what happened with SARS. And in that, they called it the bullet that went whistling past humanity's ear. Um, tell us about the lessons from the original SARS uh, and whether we have applied them here or, or we still could apply them here. And so the reason I use the hashtag new SARS or SARS 2.0 is to make the point that the strategy we should have used for this disease was a containment or elimination strategy. And that is the strategy that has been used by our colleagues in Southeast Asia. So that's a strategy that China used Taiwan, Hong Kong, New Zealand. And as I use those countries, these are countries that have had few cases and many now are, have zero cases within their communities. Now, SARS 2.0, this new SARS coronavirus 2, is not the original SARS virus. It is a lot more communicable. We also know that unlike the original SARS virus, unfortunately, it's a bedeviling virus because you get, you're infectious two days before you're sick. Uh, 
And with the original SARS virus, you got more infectious as you got sick. So that's made it a little bit more difficult to contain. But that containment strategy, if you use the same containment strategy, you can really drop cases within the community. And so countries that took that same approach have done better. Uh, and this is a strategy we can still use. And this is the strategy that WHO has always advised. And when you hear the term test, 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 they're talking about a containment strategy, which is drop community transmission, find every case early, isolate them, find every contact, quarantine them, and use those measures to continue to drop your community transmission and protect everybody in your community. And so that's the lesson to learn from the original SARS. So yes, not the exact same virus, but the same lesson in terms of containment. Well, as you look across the United States, this is a response that's largely being driven differently depending on where you are. Um, are you observing any locality doing that kind of uh, containment strategy successfully in the United States? So currently in the U.S., what you'll notice is um, we have plateaued cases in the U.S. somewhere around 25 to 30,000 cases for the last month or so. And so unlike our, uh, like Europe, which is ahead of us uh, in, in phase-wise for this outbreak, where they're seeing a decline in cases, we're not seeing a decline in cases. And while New York City or the New York City area is seeing a decline, the U.S. as a whole is not. And so this is kind of a summation of lots of different waves causing this plateauing. So no, we have a lot of work to do to try to get cases down within our communities. And if you look at the number of tests we do in the US, we're doing about 250,000 a day. We should be doing 350 to 700,000 a day. And until we're doing that many tests a day, uh, no, we're not making the type of progress we need to be doing uh, uh, you know, nationwide to be dropping cases and taking that con containment approach. Do you see ways to increase that testing uh, capacity it seems like there are issues with the reagents, the swabs, the viral transport media, all of these things that go into being able to run these PCR tests. Can we solve that and really double or triple our testing numbers? So every time I'm told about all of the difficulties in doubling and tripling our testing methods, I remind uh, folks that there's one company, just a single company in China that makes two million tests a day including kits, including viral transport media. So I'm continuously dumbfounded why the United States with the most amazing biomedical infrastructure in the world, with the raw materials, with the people, with the money, cannot scale up testing to a mere 700,000 tests a day. Why can't we? As I said, completely dumbfounded uh, why we cannot get testing up to that level in the United States. Uh, and a good example is South Korea. You know, South Korea, uh, their first case was a day before ours in January, and they got their testing up very quickly, decided to take a, so they uh, take a nationwide approach to testing, scaled it up, brought commercial companies in immediately, and they took a completely different approach, strategic approach to their outbreak, and they only have a handful of cases uh right now. So uh, every time I read in the paper, we're apparently, you know, 
get right there on the threshold of getting testing up, but uh, we still do not have testing up to where it needs to be here in the U.S. Well, we saw the governor of Maryland actually import 500,000 tests from South Korea. If other countries have this capacity, I mean, is that a solution for the United States, do you think? And and should that be uh, something that's done by the federal government or or is it right to be doing it on the state level? So there's all sorts of solutions. Import import from other countries as part of state or federal solutions and uh, use the Defense Production Authorization Act in the U.S. Uh, uh, there's all sorts of potential solutions to this, but this is a problem that needs to be solved. It should have been solved back at the end of January. We're now here into May and we still have not solved the testing uh, uh, quandary here in the U.S. And yet, of course, there are several states that are beginning the process of reopening their economies. Um, I can imagine your your answer to this, but but do you think that's a good idea? What what's that going to look like? So I'm very careful not to double guess local and state public health officials, and not to double guess the elected leadership. So if they if they are have strengthened public health capabilities to make sure that they are driving down transmission within the community by, you know, identifying cases and identifying contacts, then it seems appropriate to be reopening their economies. Uh, but as long as they're making sure they're driving down uh, local transmission, because even though you're opening up, we have not canceled the pandemic. The pandemic's still out there. Probably 90% of Americans are still susceptible to infection. And there's a lot to be learned by this virus, learned about this virus. And we're not sure why it stopped, right? It did, well, it didn't stop. We're still seeing 20, 30,000 cases every day. But, you know, why did it not sweep across the whole United States and infect everybody at once? Uh, it didn't do that anywhere in the world. We know worldwide that's just not the pattern this virus takes. And that's why we're all fearful of the secondary potential wave. So still susceptible. And as long as we're susceptible, we need to be careful uh, as we go out and about our ways that we don't have additional cases. Would you even say that at this point, an increase in the areas that are reopening would be called a second wave or just a continuation of the first wave that we haven't suppressed? Good point. Yes. Uh, I tell people we're still surfing the first wave before we can talk about the the second wave. And I know we don't think about the first wave because we're not hearing the daily press conferences from New York City about cases going up because we have plateaued, but we really haven't started to see the dramatic declines that other countries have seen after they've plateaued. So yeah, we still have that plateau of 20 to 30,000 cases, hoping to see the declines. Uh, but once we have the declines, the concern is of increase again as we start to open up. Coming up on the keynote, how useful is antibody testing and our immunity passports in our future? Stay with us. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane. 
Welcome back to the keynote. I'm Meg Terrell. You're listening to my conversation with Dr. Ali Khan, Dean of the College of Public Health at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. Well, I want to ask you also about antibody tests, uh, because that does seem to be an area of testing where we do have kind of plentiful supply. I mean, I just got a notification from LabCorp yesterday that they're offering a $10 antibody test. Now, you posted a sort of funny video um, about uh, (laughs) SARS-CoV-2 rapid antibody testing, essentially that implied it was no more accurate than that, you know, childhood game we played with things called cootie catchers uh, in guessing whether you have the antibodies. So I'm, I'm assuming that's sort of an indictment of the, the flood of antibody tests we've seen get on the market uh, without FDA's um, rigorous you know, authorization process. But there are 12 tests that have been authorized through the FDA now. Are those useful tools? Um, how would you assess just the, the usefulness of antibody testing? So the good news is, yes, FDA has sort of started to clamp down on everybody coming out with these antibody tests. So that's the good news. Um, the second piece of good news is some of these tests are becoming a lot more accurate. So even though they're approved, as, that doesn't necessarily go to what their accuracy is. Uh, but hopefully soon we'll have good, accurate uh, antibody tests. Uh, but that doesn't uh, mean that these are tests that tell you you specifically are immune and how long you've been immune for. And I know everybody's sort of looking for the so-called immunity passport, that if they get this antibody test, it means that they're immune and they can go out and about and don't have to worry about getting infected. I think that's a real leap of faith at this point to some antibody test means that you are immune. It may mean you've been infected, but may not necessarily mean you're immune. Um, So that may take a take a bit. But the antibody test, once we have good tests, may give us a better sense of how many people were infected in America. And that'll be good information to have as we try to make calculations of where the virus may go next and how it's really, you know, infecting people across the U.S. So from a personal utility level, you don't think antibody tests are very helpful? I don't think from a personal utility level, at the current point, they're helpful. Eventually, we'll have a better sense of what specific antibody does tell you. It does give you a sense of immunity. But I'm going to be very honest with you, Meg. I think in this case, the science is going to chase what people want, and people want an immunity certificate. And I think they will be granted or think they have an immunity certificate regardless of what the science says. Uh, and I'm pragmatic that way. Uh, I've seen, you know, airlines talking about immunity certificate. I've seen countries talking about immunity certificates. So even though scientists are saying be cautious about this, the WHO has said to be cautious about this, uh, I think people are looking to try to use these antibodies as a way to say that, look, I'm immune, uh, you know, let me, you know, let me get a pass on whatever. Mm -hmm. How long do you think it will take the science to know if uh, having a positive result on an antibody test does mean you're immune? Oh, there's a lot of work going on on that right now. So we'll look, I saw some recent papers looking at neutralizing antibodies, which is usually where this starts. These are certain types of antibodies that tell you you can neutralize the virus. Uh, so there's already work going on with that to look at the specific types of antibodies in your body that you have that would say, yes, it, if you have this type, it means that you are immune to the virus. So that work is ongoing right now. I'm sure people will be eagerly awaiting that. Um, I do want to get to some questions from our viewers, but first I just want to go kind of rapid fire with you if I could through a couple okay. pieces of news that have um 
you know, captured a lot of attention about the virus in the last week. The first one is something you, you tweeted about, a, a report of a patient in Paris with no travel history as early as December 27th. So what does that tell you about the earliest days of this virus and change our thinking about um, potentially its origins or, or just the earliest days of when it was circulating? It doesn't change anything for me until I until that gets verified in a secondary lab with sequencing and somebody goes back to that patient and does some serologic testing to see whether or not they have some other evidence of that person being infected. Because uh, having somebody infected in France who had no travel um, um, back in December dramatically changes things so much that you really need proof before making such an assertion. Are there any other pieces of evidence that uh, play into the changing picture of the early days of the virus? For example, the person who passed away on the West Coast, uh, who was then found later, uh, their sample was tested and found to be positive for COVID-19 much earlier than we thought. So that was still within uh, January, and that's completely compatible with the timeline. We know there was travel, about half a million people who traveled back and uh, back and forth before we put the travel ban in place uh, towards the end of January. So having people who were sick in January who had traveled back to Wuhan in December, early January, doesn't change the timeline for when we think the virus spread. So that one is not incompatible. The other piece of data we have, if you look at the genetic clock, suggests that the virus probably emerged sometime in early, early to late October. So uh, that's another piece of information. So probably emerged early to late October, transmission within uh, Wuhan identified in uh, December, uh, cases started to accelerate, and then you started to see travel cases out of Wuhan into China and then into the rest of the world. So uh, second topic in the rapid fire, <laughs> uh, two different papers that came out in the last few days. One was a preprint, so not yet peer reviewed, uh, but that one getting a lot of attention from Los Alamos National Laboratory about a mutation they've observed in the virus that they suggest makes it more contagious. Of course, there has been another paper uh, saying there is another mutation that's weakened the virus. Uh, are both potentially true? And does either make any difference? So... Uh... I think we're putting uh, too much import on these papers. Number one, they're not peer, they're not peer reviewed. Uh, number two, we saw the same thing published with Ebola, and in the end, these are in the end these are minor changes that mean nothing for the virus. Do not mean that they're more contagious. We already have evidence that they do not mean that the disease is more uh, is severe. Uh, so I w wouldn't make very much of these at all, to be honest with you. Okay, that's helpful. And then the third one is um, is concerning. So there have been reports on now at least 64 kids in New York who have this sort of mysterious illness that, that appears to be similar to Kawasaki disease and appears to be linked to COVID-19. Tell us about you know, your observations of what you're seeing there um, and how that changes your thinking about this disease in, in kids. So this is a brilliant question because now you have linked this question Back to your first question, because the first disease I worked on when I joined CDC was Kawasaki disease, as oh, a wow. disease detector. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done, Meg. So Kawasaki it's unintentional, disease. Unintentional, but I'll take it. Well, then take take the credit for it. So Kawasaki <laughs> is, is an unexplained inflammatory disease uh, in children, and the reason we worry about it is it causes uh, aneurysms in little kids' hearts. Um, 
And um, so it, it appears that maybe as a side effect, a rare a complication of COVID-19 that kids may, may also get this rare complication, may get this complication that looks like Kawasaki disease. It's now not just been reported in the U.S. It was originally reported in England. Uh, and so this is something that will play out over time uh, to see how common this is and whether or not using immunoglobulin, which is one of the therapies we use for Kawasaki disease, if that's also the appropriate therapy uh, in this case also to pre- prevent long-term complications uh, in these children. Right. And of course, immunoglobulin is um, derived from donor blood, if I'm correct on that. And that's concerning because blood donations are, are significantly lower now, right? And, and we know that that product was already in shortage. So this could potentially be pretty concerning, I'm imagining. Correct. So I want to go to one of our viewer questions from Ahmed, um, who asks, from a funding point of view, does the doctor feel that countries are dedicating enough resources to fight future pandemics? We have to start thinking about the next one already. If the U.S. significantly scales back WHO contributions, what impact would that have? Okay, so there's a couple of two pieces. This this is a two-part question to me. So the first is we need to make sure we appropriately fund our local and state and national public health departments, right? So this is our own public health infrastructure. And I think we have learned during this public, during this current pandemic that we have not sufficiently funded CDC, our state health departments and our local health departments. So that's one thing we need to make sure we focus on. The second piece of that question is that we now recognize that a disease anywhere is a disease everywhere. And that if we want to protect Americans, we need to join in the global fight with WHO to make sure that we have strong health systems, public health systems worldwide. And yes, we need to ensure that we are supporting WHO, especially now when WHO is leading the global fight uh, and they're putting out great uh, guidelines worldwide. They're helping support low and middle income countries. And so, yes, we need to continue to support WHO and other countries to make sure that they also have robust public health infrastructures. And by that way, we're protecting ourselves also. Well, I want to ask you also about the CDC. Um, You spent more than two decades there. And you know, I've been covering healthcare for a decade and covered Ebola and covered Zika. And in my experience, the CDC was the uh, the agency giving the messaging. We were hearing from Tom Frieden every day on Ebola. Um, we haven't had a briefing from the CDC now in, I think, two months. What is your assessment of what's happening there uh, with the CDC and its role in this pandemic? Oh, boy, that's a real personal question. So you're right. I spent 23 years at CDC, the most amazing agency. Uh, It's a great place to work where everybody you meet is smarter than you are. I mean, absolutely. Uh, There's no doubt that they made a number of missteps during this outbreak, Uh, strategic uh, missteps, uh, operational uh, missteps, starting with what I call the original sin the failure to establish and scale up national testing, um, uh, initially the failure to be the point source for all public health uh, information, 
But that said, you know, even in my role here, they are putting out excellent guidelines. They're out there investigating outbreaks. They recently put out great guidelines for meatpacking plants, for example, long-term care facilities. I see their teams out here in local and state health departments providing support. Uh, and I agree with you. I'm as a public health professional, as an American citizen, I I miss their voice. Uh, you know, they are the premier public health agency. Not they're not just our public health agency. They still are the premier global public health agency, the biggest public health brains in the world. And I do miss their voice. Uh, and yes, they are putting out these great guidelines. They are out in the field. They are out in the field. But it and with no disrespect to the amazing work being done by Dr. Deborah Burks and by Dr. Anthony Fauci. But yes, I do miss the voice of uh, CDC on the TV and radio every day. And of course, while there were missteps at the beginning, which you you outlined, they were also incredibly right. I mean, it was Dr. Nancy Massonier who said, I think it was on February 25th, that it's a matter of when and not if uh, you know this hits us in a big way. And she was telling us to be prepared to really dramatically change our lifestyles. And at the time, it felt very, very dramatic and unimaginable. But only a few weeks later, we were doing exactly what she was saying. Oh, no, absolutely. Nancy Nancy was spot on uh, with that message. And I said, yes, there were some missteps, but, you know, the guidance, everything is their science is spot on. I mean, these are these are, again, the best public health minds in the world. Places like China, CDC doesn't even make any sense in their language and they name their public health agency CDC. And that's why. Coming up on the keynote, Dr. Khan on the challenges we may face even after we have a COVID-19 vaccine. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the keynote. I'm Meg Terrell. You're listening to my interview with Dr. Ali Khan, Dean of the College of Public Health at the University of Nebraska. I want to ask you about your thoughts on the likelihood we will actually see a vaccine in these timelines of 12 to 18 months, which we've been hearing about. That would be faster many times over than we've ever seen in history. I think the fastest vaccine development time was four years for mumps back in 1967. Do you think we're actually going to have a vaccine by the fall or early 2021? So I am very careful to tell people that I've been waiting 18 months for the last 30 years for the HIV vaccine. So I hope we have a vaccine in 12 to 18 months, but I'm I'm very realistic that we may not have a vaccine. And I still want to make sure that we're focusing on what we can personally do to protect ourselves 
and to make sure that we're strengthening public health for what they can do to drive down transmission within our communities, right? Without a vaccine, New Zealand had zero cases yesterday. Without a vaccine, China had zero cases yesterday. So let's look at models from other countries of what they've done to drive down cases without a vaccine, and let's try to follow some of that also. Hmm. Well, if we are lucky enough to have a vaccine uh, at any point, a, a big question about it is going to be our ability to manufacture it at a huge scale. And I was reading Dr. Rick Bright's um, whistleblower complaint last night. Of course, he's the former BARDA director who was removed, and he claims he was removed you know, over clashes with his superiors uh, over a number of things. Um, but one thing that hasn't gotten as much attention uh, that he says he was trying to call attention to was the potential shortages of syringes, needles, and vials for delivering vaccines at huge scale if, if we do get one. And his complaint quotes a memo from Peter Navarro to the White House Coronavirus Task Force saying, quote, we may find ourselves in a situation where we have enough vaccine, but no way to deliver all of it. Given what we know about the shortages we've seen in everything else from PPE to testing materials to ventilators, to N95 respirators, is this the next shortage we're going to face? And do you think the U.S. is preparing for it? I know the U.S. is preparing for it because I just read an article of a of a contract for 100 million doses of needles and syringes, so uh, uh, supplies. So it sounds like the federal government realizes that they don't just need the vaccine, but they need to make sure that they have all the associated supplies to get the vaccine. And that's how the SNS has always worked. It wasn't, for example, we didn't just buy this, you know, smallpox vaccine. We make sure we made sure we got the little bifurcated needles also. Uh, so um, they are aware of that and they will make sure that, yes, we do have enough syringes and needles and boxes. And you make other it sound so, so simple and, and so obvious. And yet, the strategic national stockpile didn't have enough of the materials that we needed for the other things at the beginning of this. Uh, they didn't have, yeah, that's, that's a different issue though. It wasn't their mission to have all the ventilators and masks you needed for a pandemic. That wasn't, that wasn't their mission. But uh, in this case, I think people do know they need to have syringes if they're going to give uh, 330 million doses of uh, vaccine. But remember, I just had this conversation with you about uh, testing, right? Why do we not have, why do we not have 750,000 tests every day? So right. somebody's on top of this and responsible and accountable for it. Right. We, we have to hope somebody is. Um, I think uh, as, as kind of a last question to you, um, could you tell us what your view of the next year or two looks like um, or even longer than that, is COVID-19 something that's going to be with us seasonally for a long time? What What is our new normal, do you think? And, and how do we get through, you know, this first hardest part of the pandemic and hopefully to a point where we're not at this level where we're all sequestered in our houses all the time? So I don't think we're all going to be sequestered in our houses all the time. I, I don't think we can. People are social animals. We need to be out and about. Uh, what I'm looking forward to is continuing to drive disease down within our communities with a strong public health system. And we'll have low-level transmission in our communities with good rapid response forces that take care of hotspots as they show up. That's what I see happening. I'm still not convinced that this disease is intrinsically a human disease long-term. And we will learn shortly if China truly interrupts transmission 
in China, if New Zealand, if Taiwan, if they truly, truly interrupt transmission, then it's possible that this disease is not suited to be a long-term human disease. And if we get our act together and we drop cases down low enough, we too may be able to interrupt transmission in the U.S. along the lines of an elimination. Uh, it's hard to talk about elimination with 20,000 cases a day, uh, needless to say. But let's start by getting that down into the, you know, hundreds and teens before we talk about elimination. But it's really going to depend on the virus. Is this well suited for long-term transmission amongst humans? Or is it like, in this case, is it like the good old SARS one we started with, where it just really isn't a good human human disease? Whoever thought we'd be calling it the good old SARS one. Um, and I guess, you know, in closing, if you had a message personally for what we all can be doing to contribute to trying to get to that elimination point, what would your message be? So I have a simple twofold message. First is protect yourself and your family and your community. So please wear a mask, wash your hands, do the social distancing things that you can personally do. The second is maintain pressure on your elected leaders and on your healthcare practitioners to continue to decrease community transmission every day within your own communities, right? And that's about maintaining that pressure about the testing, finding the cases, and finding those contacts. And between those two things, you will see decreasing cases within your community and an increasing opening up of your community. So that would be my advice to people. That was Dr. Ali Khan, Dean of the College of Public Health at the University of Nebraska Medical Center and former director of the Office of Public Health Preparedness and Response at the CDC. His book, The Next Pandemic, On the Front Lines Against Humankind's Gravest Dangers, chronicles his years investigating diseases like Ebola and SARS. We spoke on May 6, 2020. And we'll be speaking with many more experts, executives, and influential voices in healthcare at CNBC's virtual Healthy Returns Conference on May 12, 2020. More information on how you can join us at cnbcevents.com. The keynote is produced by the CNBC Events team. I'm Meg Terrell. Take care and thanks for listening. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.